Welcome to a podcast about Hilton Head Island and the Low Country. I am your host, Jay McCain. Today's episode is part one of a three-part series with island legend Greg Russell. We'll find out how Greg came to the island, what the early days were like in Sea Pines, and Greg's connection to the Piggly Wiggly as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. Greg, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Good to see you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? I grew up a family of six children in Birmingham, Alabama, and then went away to high school, boarding school outside of Orlando, Florida, and then undergrad and grad school down there and uh, uh, eventually came here back in the mid-70s and been here ever since. What was it like growing up in Alabama? You know, we had a great big yard. Uh, we didn't have much of anything other than a big yard. And, you know, we always had wiffle ball bats and footballs, and uh, we were building forts and, and riding our bikes and building uh, uh, tree houses out in the woods. And so it was kind of that uh, idyllic kind of life that, uh, you know, you don't really see much anymore. I, I dare you to drive through the neighborhoods here and, and see little kids out uh, playing a pickup game of of wiffle ball or riding their bikes or building a fort you know though that maybe those days are gone i i loved growing up the way we did yeah it's not exactly indiana where there's a basketball hoop hanging on every garage no <laughs> you kind of always tell the story when you're playing down in harbor town but how did you learn to play the guitar you know my sister um uh, we had a somewhat of a musical family. Uh, my mom was a, a, a trained pianist and studied, and uh, she uh, was able to get my sister, my older sister, a piano one year. And my sister liked music and one day brought home a, uh, an Elvis Presley record. And remember the old great big records? And, and she played that thing nonstop. And so there was music around the house. And... Um, after my parents passed away, they spent their last 20 years here. Fortunately, we got to uh, be with them the last days of their, their lives here. But as we were cleaning out my parents' home down in Sea Pines, I came across a receipt that my mom had kept where she bought me my first guitar, and she paid it over time. She paid $6 a month for this guitar so that they could afford for me to uh, uh, to get it, and I, I I just sat in my room and listened to records and kind of picked it up, and uh, you know I had a passion for it early on, and I became the the kid that sat around uh, the campfires at uh, at camp and you know that sort of thing, and I found out the girls really liked the guitar player, so uh, I was in. <laughs> That's the way it always comes to work, doesn't? It? Yeah. Where uh, where'd you go to school? Well, the uh, boarding school I went uh, to was outside of Orlando, Florida, and then I went to the University of Tampa, uh, and then I went to the University of Florida uh, for grad school. How did you end up getting hired to, to play at, at Harbortown? And I understand there might be some sort of a Disney connection? Yeah, well, I was at Disney. I, I um, auditioned for a legendary Disney guy named Sonny Anderson in a great big boardroom down in Orlando. And uh, he gave me a he gave me a chance, and uh, the Disney Entertainment folks put me with two other guys, uh, 
and I was kind of the front guy, and we uh, walked around the park. Back in the early days of Disney, there weren't a lot of attractions, and the, uh, the lines, even like today, were very long back then. So they had a lot of live entertainment throughout the park as a uh, distraction, really, for having to wait in line and the heat and all the rest of it. So this trio that I was part of, we would roam throughout the park. We had our favorite places where we'd stand under a shady place and draw a crowd on the street and just do our our shtick. And uh, I was working there on the weekends while I was in grad school to earn a little money. And I loved the whole Disney concept of everything they were doing. So one day, uh, a couple of weeks before I was supposed to graduate, uh, an agent walked up to the three of us, a guy named Frank Hanshaw from Atlanta, Georgia, walked up and said, hey, you guys are really good. Uh, I have a two-week job on a place called Hilton Head Island. Would you guys like the job? And the other two guys had become Disney employees, and they were happy there. And I, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it if you'll let me go as a single uh, artist. And he booked me, and uh, I drove up here, uh, you know, some weeks later and started out on a two-week job. And after the end of two weeks, I went in to get in my get my little meager paycheck. And this old gruff guy that worked for Sea Pines way back then, he said, uh, I hear what you're doing down there in, uh, in Sea Pines in uh, Harbortown. And if you want to stay two more weeks, well, I guess you can stay two more weeks. So... Two weeks became two more and two more and two more, and I ended up staying that entire first summer. That's that's an amazing story. Where Now, when you got here, you didn't know anybody. Uh, the place was relatively new. I mean, this was 1976. Yeah, it was very different back then. Of course, I didn't, I didn't know a soul. There was not one stoplight on Hilton Head. There were no four-lane roads anywhere. And you could uh, you could buy a, an oceanfront lot back then for uh, what you pay for a one week timeshare now I guess, um, but I got here and I I just felt at home for some reason. Uh, I met some of the Seapons executives early on and 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 it was so different in Harbortown back then. People were walking around in in July in blazers and 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 you know, coat and tie. And it was just different. Um, and you didn't see a lot of kids running around or anything. And um, I was lucky because what I had been doing with Disney was interacting with people on the on on the street. And it was no different. It transferred over to what Harbortown was then. And I noticed as I got kids around me that People started to stop and listen and and hang out with me for a while, and and that was really the beginning of it. Now, where were you staying when you first moved to the island? Well, I've told this story so many times. In fact, I told this story at Charles Fraser's funeral. Sea uh, Pines was not providing a place for me to stay back then, so I had an old Chevy van that I had in college and. And uh, so I went to the red and white supermarket, which is now the Piggly Wiggly over at Caligny. And I asked uh, Gene Martin, who uh, uh, was the owner of the grocery store, uh, I said, 
Mr. Martin, can I park my van behind uh, the supermarket here? And uh, I have a little fan that I'd like to plug in. And uh, would you mind if I stay here for a while? He said, sure. So I pulled into this little alleyway that was behind the grocery store back then and plugged in my fan. And uh, during the day, I'd go to the beach and do whatever I was doing. And, and then in the evening, early evening, I'd unplug and drive down to Harbortown, unload all of my equipment, because um, I was working five hours a night back then, unload my equipment. And I was so hot and sweaty that I would go down to the marina office down by the lighthouse and they had showers back then for the uh, people on the boats. And so I'd take a shower and then do a show. And then after the shows were over, uh, I'd load my equipment back up in the van, take another shower, because now I'm really hot and sweaty, go back and park behind the red and white and uh, plug my little fan in and, and start all over again for the next day. Uh, so that was Gene Martin, whose son uh, David still is uh, running the uh, uh, Red and White or the Piggly uh, down at Caligny. Piggly's got quite a following. Oh, yeah. I love the pig. <laughs> Do you still shop there? <laughs> Actually, no. Uh, uh, you know, with the Kroger and Publix and all of that, a little closer to where I am, uh, it's a little more convenient. But uh, they do a, still do a great job there. They've got great seafood in there. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's Absolutely. a great place for seafood. Now, how, how long did you do that, and when did your circumstances change? Well, I stayed in my van uh, for the great majority of that summer, and toward the end of the summer, Charles Fraser, the original developer of Sea Pines and lots of other places, uh, I saw him walking by one night as I was loading up my equipment. I knew who he was, and I had spoken to him a couple of times, but I didn't really have a relationship with him at that point. And he, he approached me, and he said, uh, you know, I'm taking out some guys on my sailboat tonight, a beautiful old choily wooden sailboat called... Uh, the Compass Rose, which was docked right next to the Liberty Oak there in Harbortown. He said, I'm taking these uh, insurance executives out on the sailboat tonight. Would you like to go? I said, yes, sir. So I packed up, and uh, we went out sailing, and, and he regaled them with stories of the early days and uh, just told stories like no one— uh, can tell could tell stories like Charles could, and then we came back into the harbor. And Br being the uh, Southern uh, boarding school gentleman that I that I was, um, I uh, stayed behind to help clean up and you know put the cushions away and all that. And uh, as I was doing that, Charles Fraser said, "Here, sit down. I want to talk to you." So I thought to myself, "Oh, this is how they fire you. Great. They take you on a sailboat, then they then they fire you." <laughs> so he said to me, he said, "Where where are you living?" Well, I now assume that he probably knew where I was living. I said, "Well, I'm living in my van parked behind the uh grocery store down at Caligny. What I want to say was, well, you're not paying me enough that, you know, I can afford to rent anything. And he said, well, where would you like to live? So we're sitting on his sailboat there in Harbortown. And I pointed to the condos up above the shops there in Harbortown, up on the second and third floor, there's condos up there. And I pointed up there and I laughingly said, well, <laughs> I'd like to live up there. 
Well, the next Friday, when I went in to pick up my still meager paycheck, there was a handwritten note from Charles, which I still have, with a key scotch tape to it. And he said, what you've been doing in Harbortown for little children and grandmas and everybody in between is exactly the feeling I wanted Harbortown to have at night. Here's a key to one of the condos above the shops in Harbortown. You may live there rent-free for as long as you want to stay. So for four years, I lived rent-free up above the shops at Harbortown. I'd roll my equipment down at night and, uh, and do the shows. And then during the off-season, a lot of the Sea Pines uh, alumni executives who n- had seen me or heard about what I was doing at, at Sea Pines invited me to come to Colorado and Arizona, and I went back to Disney. And, uh, uh, you know, I started working at the ski resorts uh, at Aspen and Vail and Beaver Creek in the wintertime. And after four years or so, uh, I invited Charles to lunch, and uh, we sat down at lunch, and I handed him the key and slid it across the table, and I said, I can afford my own place now. Maybe there's somebody else that needs a start in life like you gave me, and uh, uh, I've never forgot nor uh, failed to appreciate what he did for me. You know, it's amazing to hear stories like that, and you know, I think everybody can think back in their life when they were getting started, and there's usually at least one, if not a lot of people, that help people, you know, helped you get your start or, or get you going in life. And, um, you know, that just shows what what was he like as a, as a person? What was Charles Frazier really like? Well, he was different. He he lived in, a, in, in rarefied air. Uh, I, Perhaps the only genius I've ever met or, or been around on a consistent basis. But you had to accept him for the way he was. He was a storyteller. He was a Southern gentleman. He didn't care about money. All, the only money he cared about was uh, to have enough to keep building his vision. Um, I, I don't think he ever became uh, tremendously wealthy. Uh, except in the things that matter. Um, He loved to collect uh, ancient sea charts. He had some of the earliest charts that were ever developed of the southeast coast. Um, And he just had a vision for uh, families. And and, uh, can you imagine that people fought him tooth and nail over bike paths in sea ponds? People did not want bike paths. Um, and if you, if you look at Atlantic City or Myrtle Beach or Daytona Beach or Destin, Florida, back then and even a lot now, you know, they cut a, lo- uh, a road along the, uh, the beachfront and built huge uh, buildings on one side. And on the other side, it was a hodgepodge of whatever came. Well, Charles didn't do that. He built finger roads down uh, to the waterfront, um, and he lived within the environment. He said, I want my properties to feel like, uh, you know, in New York City, uh, you have developments and people walk to a park. He said, I want people to feel like they're living in a park. 
and if you want to if you want to be as far away from the centers of Harbortown and Seapon Center and South Beach, you can you can be so far removed from that and still live in an environment that's vibrant and and has a lot of energy to it. You know, uh, a lot of places uh, you go and shut yourself in and shut the garage door and you don't see or hear anybody until you you leave again. But Charles wanted a very in um, interactive community, and I believe he got that with a good uh, combination of uh, uh, people coming as visitors and people coming as part-time residents and people here as as full-time residents. I was reading the last chapter of a book called Backwater Frontier. It's written by uh, Rich Thomas. And the last chapter in there is all about Charles Frazier, and it's by no means all-encompassing, but what struck me about that the story of Charles, it's kind of the, the generalized story, is the fact that people fought him every step of the way, no matter what he was doing. When his dad and his partners had the logging company, he saw what Hilton Head and the island could actually be. And he's going around telling them which trees to cut down and which ones to leave. And he, he's responsible for saving all these live oaks yes. and a lot of the hardwoods that are there. So he gets fought on that. And then, you know, they fight him on bike paths. They fight him on, on the street layouts. They fight him on, you know, one of the biggest fights, my understanding, is is building of the lighthouse. Everybody's like, why do you want to build that? And they call it the Fraser's Folly. Yes. You know, and it's one of the most recognizable, you know, landmarks, you know, in the United States, if not the world. Everybody sees that every time they play the Heritage every year. Sure. So how did his personality help him cut through all the pushback? that he was getting for all these different things that he was, he wanted to do. Well, he was single minded and passionate, uh, about the low country, about preserving, uh, as much of the environment as possible. And places like this just didn't exist. I mean, he, he personally deemed that no building would be, uh, taller than the tallest tree. Now, where else can you go in a, in a resort that, attracts uh, millions of people every year and uh, you know there's no high rises to to speak of you know everything blends within the uh, the environment uh, the animal life here uh, flourishes uh, and uh, man and nature have learned to live together in an environmentally sensitive way because of the way he laid it out and uh, the vision he had for it. Tell me a little bit about the early days of Sea Pines and, and what it was like here. There, you know, weren't a lot of houses and it was pretty rustic. Yeah, it was. It was very quiet. I mean, I came from Orlando that was, uh, you know, growing leaps and bounds because of Disney and and all of that. And uh, you know, going to school in Florida, going to Daytona Beach or St. Pete or Clearwater, you know that that early image of what beach communities were supposed to look like. When you got here, you saw none of that whatsoever like i say you, you took long winding roads through the uh, back country uh to get here there was no 278 four lane highway to get in here and bridges there was a turn bridge and ferry service before that so when i got here there were about i don't know 4000 residents maybe and uh, most of those were part timers and it was uh, it was very different 
than it is now. And people say, well, did you like it more back then or do you like it more now? Well, back then you had to go to Savannah, which was a two-hour drive, really, to get uh, a pillow, to buy anything <laughs> whatsoever. Um, you know, if I needed a, a set of guitar strings, which I needed quite often, you had to go all the way to Savannah to, uh, you know, get most anything. Yeah, no Amazon. <laughs> no, but the, the people that this environment attracted brought with them uh, you know, good ideas, and uh, you know, yeah, they fought Charles on a lot of things, but he won out in the end. And as a result, you see Sea Pines and Hilton Head uh, the way it is because of the early visionaries uh, that were here. There were only, you know, a handful of MBA executives that came to work for Charles, but. They were um, single-minded in their devotion to him and his vision. And it, uh, here we are 50-plus years later, and it has uh, stood the test of time. One of the things that I loved as a kid, when we, we started coming in 1973, which was even pre-you, if you can believe it. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I really loved about it was those bike paths and, and sea pines and the fact that, you know, as I got older, my parents were like, yeah, you can go ride all you want all by yourself. And, you know, there was no danger whatsoever unless you, you know, got too close to a gator, you know, fell sure. in the water. But, um, you know, you could just ride, you know, all day long. You know, I'd go out for hours and hours and hours and come back and they were like, where you been? I was like, oh, I've been to Harbor Town, I've been to South Beach. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it's like, you know, it was just a, a wonderful place as a kid during the summers. What was it like, you know, what was it, can you compare what the summers were like versus what it was like here in the off season. Well, the off season, um, you know, was very quiet. You know, once you get got past October and you got into November, December, January, February, uh, when the azalea started blooming again in March and April, then it seemed like the people showed up again. But now that that's not true. I mean, now we have a year-round living, vibrant community. And so there, there are always people here. And, and, you know, I hear our critics say, well, no, it's too crowded there now. I don't, I don't go there anymore. I go somewhere else. Um, well, everywhere has grown exponentially. But I, I think it's been handled here as well as it could humanly uh, be handled with the, with the development or lack thereof. Uh, I think the controls that were put in place early on have served us all well. And, and now in, in February, I'll, you know, I'll tell my wife, you know, I'm going to the grocery store to pick up some stuff. And I come back an hour later because it, every aisle I walk down, I'm, I'm talking to somebody for five or ten minutes, you know. So it's, it's a real small-town community. Now in the summer— um, you know, in the spring and the, even in the fall now, uh, we get our, our share of visitors, and, and God bless them, because without them, our, our real estate uh, wouldn't be as stable as it is. We wouldn't have 200-plus restaurants, and uh, we wouldn't have uh, 20 golf courses, and we wouldn't have all the things that we, that we enjoy, whether it's during the season or uh, outside of uh, the summer season. You talked uh, about the development of the island, and one of the things I think is very critical uh, about the development and how it grew over the years 
was even though the you know Charles Fraser owned the Sea Pines Company, they had a big impact on how the rest of the island got developed. And there could have been he saw a huge danger in the fact of, okay, I've got this beautiful pristine piece of property down here. I don't want the rest of it to end up being you know giant high rises and all that. Can you talk about his influence on how he made sure the rest of the island kind of everything just blended together? Well, I I think once he set his footprint at Sea Pines and then Hilton Head Plantation, they had a a symbiotic uh, relationship back then. I think other developers saw what was successful and working, and he was such a strong personality. Why would you choose to go a totally different way? I mean, all you have to do is right now go over to Defusky Island, the backside of Defusky, and see what this place looked like, you know, 60, 70 years ago. So here's Charles uh, selling uh, lots you know, that my dad, when he moved here, he said, well, you got a lot of swamp here, you know, marsh front lots. Uh, who would want to live on the marsh? That's a swamp full of mosquitoes. Um, so he, he, he set the standard and then uh, was instrumental in getting other developers to copycat the feel and the uh, uh, direction that all of Hilton Head was going. You played in the in the you know, mid to late seventies here. What'd you do during the, the off season, you know, cause you probably weren't playing in Harbor town. Well, no, I wasn't. Well, you know, uh, I went back to Disney. I, I, I played at Disney. Some of the executives, uh, from here, um, uh, one guy in particular, a guy named Harry Frampton, uh, was running Vale associates out in Colorado. And so that ski market during the winter was the perfect, uh, yin and yang for me. I had this in the summer and they invited me to come out there. So I did the ski resorts in the winter. I was touring, um, uh, college campuses. Uh, I was a little more relevant back then to the college uh, age kids. And, uh, gosh, I was doing hundreds of, uh, college campuses. And then eventually I got into the cruise ship world where I was flying all over the world, joining cruise ships for a day or two. And, and, um, you know, I had uh, the opportunity to explore a lot of different entertainment venue opportunities, whether it was festivals or fairs, or colleges, or family events, uh, the resorts, um, you know, uh, Universal Studios, Disney World. Um, you know, I, I just fell into the nirvana of the entertainment world. Now, I never became famous or a star or anything, but uh, I've never been out of work since I uh, left grad school and, and came here. I've never one day not been out of work when I wanted to uh, be doing something in the entertainment business. When you first started here on the island, was there a favorite place that you liked to go to sit and write songs or, or just play music? Well, the beach is obviously a, uh, a great, uh, soothing, relaxing place. Uh, so there were, when I was living in the van especially, you know, I could take a guitar, guitar and go down to the beach and I could attract, you know, <laughs> a, a nice little uh, uh crowd of uh let's call them visitors walking up and down, walking up and down the beach uh, 
but yeah, you know, this is a very serene, uh, cerebral place, and you're surrounded by fantastic input, whether it's the environment or people or uh, your own life experiences. So uh, it, it was very easy for me to do that. Do you have a, a favorite song that you've written over the years? You've written quite a bit of material. Yeah, I have. Uh, well, I'd have to be. It'd have to be the. Uh, you know, Charles asked me one day to write a song about Sea Pines, Hilton Head, and of course, when he asked me, I thought, oh, "Okay, well, I've got to do something here." So I fiddled around and fiddled around, and 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 finally wrote wrote a verse and a chorus of a song and went to his house one Saturday morning. I used to do a lot of Saturday morning breakfast at his house with he and uh, Mary and their kids. And and uh, so I played this thing for him. He said, yeah, yeah, I like that. Go ahead and finish that up. Uh, so the song became something called Come Away Home, um, which he liked a lot. Um, uh, a Sea Pines resident uh, whose kids kind of grew up with me owned all the record stores in the Southeast, a guy named Barry Bergman, who became a lifelong friend of mine. He invited me to his oceanfront house on Sea Pines, and, uh, and we sat down, and he said, you know, I've got an in-house label for all of our record stores. We own 600 record stores. Would you like a record deal? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> so he funded me to go to Nashville, and I had a suitcase full of songs, and uh, we recorded a bunch of stuff, and uh, the song Come Away Home was one of those. And I brought them back to Charles, and, and Charles somehow got Come Away Home to CBS, and CBS started using that song um, for their telecast in, in the spring. Um, and I got to know the CBS guys through that. But then uh, uh, the song was very popular with visitors and residents here and I turned it into a children's book and then we turned that children's book into a full-length motion picture so uh, out of everything that I've written that's really the one that uh, I'd have to identify now I've written a lot of goofy silly you know fun things but this was a little more serious and a little more from the heart it's definitely a great song as we wrap up part one I got to ask you, back in the in the late 70s, early 80s, did you have a favorite restaurant that you like to go to? Where was your favorite place to go and eat? Is it still here or is it, it now gone? Yeah, it's it's Hudson's, uh, you know, out on the north end, overlooking the water out there. David Carmine's uh, uh, started Hudson's way back when. And, uh, you know, you could sit out there and peel shrimp and then throw the skin into the into the water out there so and it was reasonably priced and still is in fact we had lunch out there last sunday so yeah uh hudson's out on the water uh back then was one of my favorite spots well, we're gonna have a lot more with greg as we uh go through part two and part three of a series with him greg thank you so much for for being here my pleasure thank you in part two of this series with Greg Russell, we'll talk about his family, changes to the island over the years, and one of Greg's biggest passions, the Hilton Head Heroes Foundation. Greg has some great family-friendly movies, CDs, and even a couple of books available on his website, gregrussell.com. That's with two Gs. I encourage you to check those out. Greg has a lot of great songs out there, but the one I'm going to finish with has a very special meaning to me. 
when my daughter and I were trying to select a father-daughter song to dance at at her wedding, we started talking about places and things that were special to us, and we kept coming back to Hilton Head and Greg Russell. I was lucky to see him play every summer as a child, and so did she. We are blessed that our kids grew up as Greg Russell kids. We listened to a couple of options and settled on this one. As you head down 278 to Lighthouse Road, I hope you enjoy When I Grow Up. When I grow up, I would like to be the owner of my own ice cream factory. Then I could eat 10 gallons every day. And I wouldn't have to hear my mother say, you'll spoil your supper, you'll break your Is your homework done? Did you clean your room? Did you feed the dog? That'll be home soon. How the parents think of all that stuff. Maybe they'll calm down when I grow up. When I grow up, I'll buy a great big band. I'll jump so high, I'll hit the ceiling with my head. And I'll Is your homework done? Did you clean your room? 